Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. The whole world is looking at Israel right now and asking, what happened? Israelis are pretty much looking in the mirror asking themselves the exact same question after last week the Knesset passed the first law in a package of proposals that makes up the Netanyahu government's judicial overhaul. That law passed as tens of thousands of protesters stood outside the Israeli parliament. We'll discuss the fallout to these dramatic events and we'll ask the question that everyone is asking, where do we go from here? We'll do that with Yochanan Plesner, the president of the Israel Democracy Institute. אני קובע כי הצעת חוק יסוד השפיטה תיקון מספר 4 עברה ונכנסה לספר החוקים. It's been seven long months since Benjamin Netanyahu's government started their effort to push through a package of legislation that will weaken Israel's judiciary and increase power in the hands of the ruling coalition, and it's been 30 straight weeks of intense public protests against it. Last week, a law was passed striking down what is called the reasonableness standard. That's the basis for the Supreme Court's judicial review of extremely unreasonable government decisions and appointments, and it is the first law in this judicial overhaul. Active in the debate over the whole thing has stood the Israel Democracy Institute. The Institute was founded in 1991 as a center of research and action dedicated to strengthening the foundations of Israeli democracy. Here with us today is Yochanan Plesner, who served in the IDF's elite Sayeret Matkal unit. He had a business career before entering politics and was a member of Knesset from 2007 to 2013. Today, he serves as president of the Israel Democracy Institute and over the past seven months has been literally everywhere, in public and behind closed doors, discussing and debating it. Yochanan, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Hi, Alison. Thanks for having me. You've been intensively engaged in this since the very beginning. Let's look back. When the package of legislation was presented in early January, what would you have said back then if you would have learned that only one element of it, the reasonableness law, would be passed only in July and only after a massive grassroots protest movement had been in the streets nonstop for seven months? Would you have viewed that as a triumph or a defeat for Israeli democracy? Uh, well, it's a good question. I mean, I would never have expected the intensity, the extent of the a protest uh, against uh, this uh, legislation. Obviously, I was extremely concerned about the, this package of legislation that constituted the de facto regime change, an absolute erosion of Israeli democracy uh, into some kind of an authoritarian democracy that you know the majority doesn't only rule, but the majority uh, uh, can ma basically make all decisions in all aspects uh, and so on. But if you asked me, as somebody who's uh, been around the block for a few years in Israeli public uh, life, what would I predict? I would have predicted that a uh, vast majority of this package would have passed back in, uh, in February or March, perhaps with the, uh, a mild watering down of some elements, but generally that 70 or 80% of it would have passed and that Israeli uh, democratic regime would have basically been fundamentally 
altered. The fact that Israelis from all walks of life have, have stood up, you know, the high-tech people and reservists and women's organizations, those organizations that did not exist before, and professionals from multiple disciplines. Israelis from all walks of life came out with confidence and persistence in order to prevent the fundamental change of the national character of the basic system of checks and balances of Israel's democratic regime. And this is something that uh, nobody could have expected uh, uh, before. In a way, the government did you a favor by being so blatant in its intent instead of doing it, you know, gradually from the from the beginning. It, well, you couldn't ignore the fact, and they were saying the quiet part out loud, that they want the ruling coalition to have the final say, and they want to essentially undermine any power that the court has to overrule, override, correct, review the actions of the government. So uh, it was out there. I think you're right, perhaps in three ways. Number one, the the package that was put forward on uh, January 4th, if I recall correctly, by Justice Minister uh, Yariv Levin, was an extremely radical and extreme package that basically undermined fundamentally the ability to conduct judicial review by the court, both vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Knesset, the legislature, and vis-a-vis -vis the government. So it's basically disarming the court, the one institution that we have in our country to constrain the otherwise all-powerful political majority, and fundamentally to change uh, the court by politically confiscating or, or controlling the entire system of uh, uh, selecting judges uh, by the coalition majority. So the package was, number one, very radical. Number two, the process, presenting, as you mentioned, an entire package uh, uh, that should be pushed through within a, a one term or so of the Knesset without proper debate, without listening to experts actually ignoring experts because we there were you know economists and uh, and uh, constitutional law professors there was basically uh, no serious expert throughout the country and uh, that, that supported this package in its entirety so so number two the process and this clearly such a change after 75 years of Israeli independence as a Jewish and democratic state based on the Declaration of Independence, such a fundamental change one would expect that would be accompanied by fundamental debate, extensive debate, serious, uh, with some kind of a willingness to also introduce changes. So number one is the package itself was very radical. Number two, uh, the process was unacceptable. And number three is the fact that this wasn't a standalone. This package was supposed to enable an entire a list of legislative items that are designed to fundamentally change Israel's character as a democratic state. And this list was exposed in the coalition agreements that were presented to the Knesset uh, late December, early January of this year. So uh, uh, legislative items that have to do with a constitutional exemption for ultra-Orthodox men uh, and women from serving in the military, changing the nature of the public sphere to create separation between men and women and basically to minimize and marginalize women in our public sphere and other such changes. So again, it, it, the, removing the court was supposed to pave the way for other fundamental changes. And I think those three uh, elements served or uh, were a catalyst for 
so many Israelis that uh, over those months went out to protest. So we could talk for a long time about what's happened, but I think what people are most interested in hearing about from you right now is where we're headed, what to expect over the next few months. What do you see the roadmap from here? You're not a stranger to the political arena. Uh, what we had on the news um, at the beginning of the week were some Likud politicians allegedly rebelling, and I'm putting rebelling in quotation marks because it's not clear whether or not they've coordinated this with Prime Minister Netanyahu or not. But they're saying, we're not going to let this happen again. We're not part of these hardline pro-reform Likud members who say, fine, if we can't get a consensus negotiation, we're going to push through unilaterally. Yuli Edelstein, member of Knesset, had an important committee in the, in the Knesset, said, I was asleep at the wheel when I let this reasonableness law pass and I voted for it. Um, it's going to be different this time with the, with the rest of the legislation. Do you see this as any kind of hope that the, the, these are real breaks that within the Likud party, members are going to put on, uh, on the Netanyahu government so that this reasonableness law is not the first cut in the slice of the salami and, uh, and there will be some kind of long-term pause on this effort to, uh, to push the entire overhaul through? Well, it's too early to tell. I mean, uh, I mean, courageous politicians that are coming out after voting <laughs> for this chapter of the overall, they just voted in favor. And now as the Knesset enters a, a, a long uh, recess until after the high holidays in uh, late October, uh, now they're saying they will only move forward with additional chapters uh, only if it's with consensus. So, I mean, there's a few months uh, ahead and, you know, politics is very dynamic. So, you know, I wouldn't disregard it. But I don't think that now we can say, well, the whole thing is behind us. So before the Knesset reconvenes, we've got important Supreme Court hearings going on in September and presumably decisions as well. There's the Supreme Court hearing the petition on Justice Minister Levine's refusal to convene the Judicial Selection Committee until the Judicial Selection Committee looks the way he wants it to look. We've got a petition being heard on whether the new reasonableness law conflicts with the basic laws protecting human and civil rights and whether that law should be voided. That's going to be a big decision. Um, and we've got the Supreme Court hearing a petition on whether to disqualify Benjamin Netanyahu from serving as prime minister um, because he violated conflict of interest uh, restrictions that arose from his own criminal trial and also being involved in uh, discussions of the judicial overhaul. So all of these petitions will probably help point to where we're going, correct? And the most important one is going to be whether this new reasonableness law is seen to stand uh, in the face of Israel's basic laws. It's an unprecedented uh, sort of event because uh, with respect to the reasonableness uh, legislation, or the legislation that is actually designed to free or exempt elected politicians from any kind of judicial review on their decision making with respect to even in cases of extreme unreasonableness. So this is the situation. Now, the court, um, as it, it conducts judicial review over this legislation, it is an unprecedented event because uh, uh, this legislation was passed as a basic law, as a change on a basic law on um, uh, as we say in Hebrew, the basic law that has to do, that organizes and regulates questions that have to do with the, the judiciary's uh, conduct. Now, basic laws in Israel are the constitutional chapters in the constitution that we don't have. So what we have essentially 
is a doctrine of an unconstitutional constitutional amendment. So if the court will decide to intervene, they will have to decide that this constitutional amendment, amendment this change in basic law, is, uh, is, is not constitutional. And this is something that it has been done uh, in the past with respect to the budget. There is also basic law. But, but essentially, we can say that it's, you know, hasn't been done. The court did discuss before the case of, uh, that was uh, the appeal against the nation state bill. So the fact that the court discussed it demonstrated that the court believes that judicial review can be conducted with, a, with respect to basic laws, but it decided in the end not to intervene, but just to inject interpretation and, and, and context into this legislation. But this is a little trickier. This is the court making a ruling on a basic law that decides how much power the court has. Yeah, it is tricky. Um, but we also have to understand, I, I saw the, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu made some interviews, obviously, in, in foreign press. It doesn't take interviews in Israel. It's easier in foreign press where people are less uh, well-versed in the details. And he said, you know, how can the court uh, even conceive of the idea of, uh, uh, of intervening in, in constitutional changes? But what he failed to share with the, with the viewers and, and listeners are that Israel does not really have a constitution because, you know, we're a democracy. For 75 years, we survived without a constitution and we created this system of basic laws to fill this void. But the big uh, drawback of the system of basic laws is that there's no special procedure for legislating a basic law. So the only difference between a a legislation of a regular law, something that has to do with municipal this or that, and a basic law that has to do with the fundamental character of the state. The only difference is that in the legislative process, you add the word basic to the title of the law, but there's no special majority, no special procedure, no special time span, and so on. So creating the analogy between that and the Supreme Court in America uh, canceling a constitutional amendment that has a a presidential veto, two-thirds of the Senate, two-thirds of the House, 75% of the states in their own local state councils uh, need to uh, ratify this constitutional amendment. So this is just the American example. And and in other parliamentary democracies, there's always some kind of a rigid uh, process uh, for making constitutional amendments. So in Israel, there isn't one. And this gives the court, one of the justifications for the court to intervene is the fact that given the fact that there's no special procedure, the Knesset can also uh, exploit its uh, authority as a convening assembly, as an assembly that is not only a legislative assembly, but a convening assembly that can legislate basic laws. And it can exploit it in the sense that it will make constitutional amendments in areas that uh, that uh, do not make sense, that are not compatible with other basic laws, changes that should not be part of a constitution, changes that are fundamentally in contradiction to core constitutional democratic values. If you free elected officials and, and you give them 100% authority in questions of nominations, allocations, which is essentially what we're doing here with the reasonableness, we're basically removing a fundamental critical tool for the court to conduct judicial review, then it's a violation 
of a fundamental principle of democracy, which is devolution of power, checks and balances. And, 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 and this might be the pretext for court uh, intervention. The court will discuss it, in a, has already scheduled the date to discuss it in uh, early September. And, uh, and this clearly will have an impact on how things will transpire. Netanyahu, in his uh, blitz of foreign press interviews, uh, was asked by Wolf Blitzer on CNN whether, if the court strikes down the reasonableness law, he will honor the court's decision, and he did not give a straight answer. He waffled on it. Um, What do you think of a prime minister of Israel saying that he will not necessarily obey uh, what the Supreme Court decides? Well, I think it's despicable, and this is a new law. Israel is a a democracy, and democracy, the the basic character of democracies are, you know, the rule of law and and human rights and independent judiciaries, and obviously that uh, everyone in the land, including the politicians, obey court decisions, and Netanyahu was uh, elusive. I think this is a a very bad show, Uh, but uh, I, I am confident that if and once the court will make uh, judgments and verdicts, those will be obeyed, even if Mr. Netanyahu will decide to try and uh, uh, dodge those decisions. The professional uh, institutions in Israeli government, whether it's the IDF, the police, the court system, the the justice ministry, and so on, will obviously obey. So, uh, But I think it's a very concerning comment and from an educational perspective as well, the prime minister has a very important voice in the public sphere and many followers who believe in his leadership. And the fact that he conveys such a message is extremely uh, reckless and, and disappointing. Do you think it will be a good thing for Israeli democracy if the court strikes down the reasonableness law? Or do you think that maybe it's just going to be a boomerang that it's going to make the, uh, the ref- pro-reform, pro-overhaul forces even more determined to do whatever they can to undermine the, uh, the power and the ability of court to do this? I mean, it might, it might it just, you know, light a fire under the debate and make it even more intense. What do you think? I mean, obviously the court will debate and decide on the legal arguments, but ultimately, do you think it would be better for our society if they strike down the law or if they let it continue to play out in the political arena? Look, I do hope and believe that the judges uh, don't make such calculations and they take a case and judge it based, you know, and produce a judgment based on, on its... Right. I'm not, on, ask, I'm not asking the judges, I'm asking you. Yeah, <laughs> on, the, on the merits. Yeah. But you know, in terms of the sort of repercussions of a decision to annul uh, this legislation, by, by the way, you know, there are other options. They can annul the entire legislation. They can narrow it down uh, but they can also inject interpretation and say it will uh, uh, apply in this way and, and basically provide a sort of roadmap of, uh, that will uh, narrow down the, uh, uh, reduce the, the, the potential negative implication. Now, assuming just for the sake of our discussion that they decide to um, annul the legislation altogether, I don't share uh, your view or your thought that uh, this might necessarily trigger a counter reaction because we are already in a situation of extreme radical counter reactions, even without the, you know, the court decision. 
So, I mean, I cannot see any sort of decisions, uh, you know, the overall that was promoted by uh, Yariv Levin was not triggered by a court decision. And nevertheless, uh, it was uh, as radical as, as one can uh, uh, go. It was basically concentrating on the, the, the powers of the state in the hands of the coalition majority. We have to understand that there are other decisions, you know, for example, one piece of legislation that was put forward, not promoted yet, that defines that the Central Election Committee, that its decisions will not be subject to judicial review. And this is a body of politicians uh, with a majority for coalition uh, uh, politicians. And essentially, it might mean that the politicians from the coalition might decide to uh, prevent uh, certain parties from running to the Knesset, say Arab parties, and it will, won't be a, a, a subject to judicial review. And that might uh, undermine the one uh, supposedly uh, agreed upon principle in democracy, which is majority rule. Everybody uh, participates in the election and, the, and majority rule. So even without judicial review, it's not that uh, we will have a democracy we will reduce our democracy to majority rule, but we might re reduce our democracy to a certain group uh, rules with no sufficient checks even to ensure free and fair election. So this is really what's at stake. And therefore, since it can't get a lot worse than that, I wouldn't be concerned about any kind of a backlash to, to such a, a, a decision. You just p published an uh, op-ed headlined, Israel Needs the U.S. More Than Ever, and you argue that it is time when Americans, quote, should rally to the defense of their embattled sister democracy just as they did when Israel's existence was endangered in 1973. Very strong. And you practically beg Americans not to give up on Israel. I'm curious what inspired you to write that. Do you get the feeling from your contacts in the United States that America is giving up on Israel? Are you so worried about the bad relationship between our prime minister and the White House that this is what is happening? What is driven you to, uh, to make that call? Well, first of all, I look at the responses of uh, you know, American and Jewish uh, leadership and uh, uh, organizations and so on. And there's a certain tendency to say, well, you know, those are domestic affairs, internal argument, it's none of our business. And my contention is, of course, it's your business. If Israel uh, ceases to be a Jewish and democratic uh, state and turns into a, um, a religious nationalist, ethno-nationalist uh, state that is run based on the uh, principles of the halakha, unfortunately, this vision is at least, you know, half of the coalition members are pushing in that direction. And this is why they support this overall, because they think it will help them move in that direction. Then. Essentially, it will end the relationship between Israel and a majority of diaspora Jewry. And a strong Israel that survives and prospers needs a strong diaspora Jewry, and a strong diaspora Jewry needs a, a democratic Israel. So this fundamentally will not only undermine uh, the interests, obviously, of, of Israel and Israelis, but it will change the trajectory of, of the Jewish people and will be bad for the interests of, of a majority of Jews in the world. So it's not only about, well, the Israelis are arguing about something, they should figure it out. It's a fundamental core interest of the Jewish community, Jewish leadership, and I expect a more assertive uh, reaction 
an intervention in this respect. This is number one. Number two, there's the U.S. administration. The U.S. administration, obviously, the relationship is based on shared interests and shared values. A weak Israel, because clearly this overall, if passed, will weaken Israel in economically, security-wise, Israeli society, uh, uh, weaken the relationship between Israel and the United States, and therefore weaken also our power of deterrence in the region. I mean, it will weaken Israel in multiple ways. A weak Israel is bad for American interests. America that wants to pivot to the uh, to the Far East and deal with the uh, with the challenges over there, and to deal with what's happening in Europe and Ukraine. Wants the the Middle East, uh, the backyard in the Middle East, to be stable and secure. And for that, there's a need for a strong U.S.-Israel axis. And if this weakens, it's bad for American interests. And of course, the whole relationship is based on shared values, and the shared values component is now being challenged. So, so clearly, it would be very cost beneficial, uh, both for American administration and American jury, to strengthen the majority of Israelis. It's a majority of Israelis that want Israel to remain a Jewish and democratic state based on the Declaration of Independence principles. And if there's a group of politicians, some because of personal interests, some because uh, they now want to sort of put their hand on the national resources and transfer it to themselves and to their uh, cronies and so on, and if there are those who have a, a halachic uh, religious vision of how this state should run, it's a number, it's a limited number of political leaders that are moving the country in a, in a, in a direction that is against the will of a majority of Israelis and against the interests both of the Jewish people, Jewish leaders, and our uh, allies in the free world, uh, first and foremost, the U.S. So yeah, given all of that, I expect a more energetic alignment of those external leaders with uh, uh, forces that are uh, strengthening and wanting to uh, secure Israel's democracy. So you've done a lot of work on the ultra-Orthodox sector in your career. Um, in 2012, a prime minister named Benjamin Netanyahu appointed you to head the Committee for Equality and the Burden of Service to make a blueprint to incorporate the ultra-Orthodox community into some kind of military or national service. The whole issue of the ultra-Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox parties, the ultra-Orthodox community is a huge subtext to this protest. As you say, the judicial overhaul is somewhat viewed as a means to an end of allowing laws that defy uh, democratic values to be passed in the Knesset without being challenged by the Supreme Court. The headline in the news this morning is hundreds of millions of shekels of our budget going to full-time yeshiva students. Uh, In my conversations with ultra-Orthodox, with Haredim, They just say out loud, a Jewish state is much more important to them than a democratic one. They don't view or value the importance of democracy. And the question is arising, can we and this growing society, this growing subpopulation of ultra-Orthodox Jews in the state of Israel really ultimately live together harmoniously in one state? Uh, Is there really a chance that we could draw up some kind of a constitution that we could all agree on there's been a lot of depressing talk about splitting the country into two countries, Israel and Yehuda. Um, and even worse, the statistics of Israelis who, in the view of this judicial overhaul, are looking to emigrate to stable liberal democracies because they've given up on the fact that this country could become one or can remain one. 
Well, it's true that another unintended consequence of the introduction of this aggressive overhaul is, uh, is the fact that uh, many Israelis now have woken uh, to the reality that the country is moving in a trajectory that is over time unsustainable, both democratically and economically. Now, what triggered this realization was uh, the fact that the ultra-Orthodox parties it was so amicable, so much in support of this overall. Many, for, for many years, the you know secular Israelis and or secular traditional national religious Israelis that believe in the sort of current type of regime of a Jewish and, 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 and democratic uh, state uh, were sort of you know aware of the uh, uh, fact that there is an ultra orthodox community that is growing in numbers and, and, and that it poses some challenges over time. But the fact that the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties in 18 seats, 18 out of 64 of the coalition, and their population was the most enthusiastic, and, and we see it in, in, in the public opinion data, in supporting this uh, overall, it brought about the realization that this is not some kind of a long-term challenge, but the ultra-Orthodox parties that have a, a disproportionate power within the Israeli political system, uh, have an interest and a desire in the short term to concentrate all power and all decision-making power in the political system where they are comfortable that they will uh, be able to uh, uh, get their way. So it's both about the ultra-Orthodox parties now wanting to uh, distribute more budget. And we saw a huge increase for uh, the uh, education system uh, that is run autonomously by uh, different uh, uh, the rabbis and, and, and communities within the ultra-Orthodox uh, community. So it's 100% uh, budgeting by the state with almost 0% uh, influence over the curriculum. And we're seeing now a legislation that essentially will mean that many hundreds, if more, perhaps even more than a thousand new uh, rabbis and local rabbis and community rabbis will be forced upon the municipalities. So the municipalities will have to fund rabbis and the government, the Shas, ultra-Orthodox party, will decide on their identity. So I just gave two examples, but, but clearly this push towards concentration of all power in the hands of the political majority will strengthen the ultra-Orthodox both in terms of their control over budgets and over the public sphere. And the challenge is not only economic, the challenge is also democratic because it's a community that educates its youngsters with values or injecting values that are anything but uh, citizens in a Jewish and democratic state. So back to my question, can we live together in one country? Can we agree on ground rules? Really, a, you know, a founding principle of, your, of the IDI is that we must have a constitution. Can you throw up your hands at this point and say, the way we're going, it's impossible? So this overall, as, as we mentioned before, the unintended consequence was not only to um, um, uh, serve as a wake-up call for many Israelis that this package cannot go through because it will be uh, uh, so detrimental to Israeli democracy. And ironically, even Justice Minister Levin now reneged on parts of, of his package. For example, the fact that the 
uh, all judges of the land should be appointed by coalition politicians. And he said, actually, this will not be democratic. I mean, it's, it's almost mind-boggling to imagine. But the reaction wasn't only against that, but as, as you mentioned, an understanding that the current trajectory is unsustainable uh, from a social, from an economic, from a security, and a, from a democratic perspective. So the only possible outcome, and, and, and this provides a very strong incentive for, for, uh, for many Israelis, the only possible outcome is not only not to pass this overall, but to not give up until the country will pass either a fully-fledged constitution or the core of the constitution, the core chapters of the constitution uh, that will secure basic rights, will ensure that changes in the fundamental character of the state will require a super large majority, for example, two-thirds, and will ensure that we have an independent professional judiciary. So those are the three minimum principles that whether... This government, and I'm, I'm obviously a bit skeptical about it, but any future and the next government should legislate in order to prevent and, and change the current trajectory and the current course uh, that the country uh, is moving towards. Uh, you are a military reservist in an elite unit, as I read. Yeah. How do you feel about the military, these units that Israel depends on for its defense, entering this debate this controversy so forcefully and one of the major arguments right now against the judicial overhaul is that it basically weakens the national defense because so many military reservists have said i'm going to stop my service if this country does not uh, operate the way that i think it should look it's the situation is heartbreaking because the most capable and the most energetic and loyal citizens of the country people who serve uh, both in, in, in military service and then in reserves for, for years and in many cases decades, are, are saying we're feeling that the, the basic contract that we signed up for is being violated. We signed up to, to, to serve and defend Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And if it ceases to be uh, democratic, uh, the, the contract expires. As you mentioned, I'm a major in reserves in, in Sayeret Matkal, a special forces unit. Uh, we're volunteers. Only 1% of Israel's population, uh, 120,000 or so, are in active reserve duty. Not just listed, but are actually active and in, 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 in serving. So this is a tiny portion of the population. And de facto, it's a voluntary service. It's voluntary of course, if you're overage, I'm overage, so I, by definition, have to sign up. But it's also voluntary because in, in, in most of the serious units, you sign up uh, for additional days. I mean, fighter pilots, even if they're 30-something in reserves, they come for a day a week. They need to sign a, a, a voluntary document that agrees or allows the military to call them up once a week. And they sign up because you're willing to come on a short notice if there's a need and an operational need and so on. So those are people that for, for decades have been volunteering and doing the utmost to, to protect the country's security. And, and for the past seven months, they, they've been uh, yelling and calling and asking and, and trying to get their voice heard and saying, we want uh, the country to remain uh, you know, Jewish and democratic. And those voices have been ignored to the extent that now uh, they said if this legislation will pass, Many of them took individual decisions and said, okay, so I won't volunteer. 
Now, I haven't done it. I was about to ask if you've made a personal decision. No, I haven't. I haven't done it. But, you know, but those from the government who attack those people, uh, it's so hypocritical. Those are people, five of the six leaders of the factions that make up our coalition, never served any uh, significant military service, not in reserves, but in the <laughs> basic service. You know, ultra-Orthodox parties, the Smotrich, Ben Gvir, you know, Smotrich did some kind of a insignificant short service at a late age. Ben Gvir uh, uh, was a criminal and not taken by the military. The ultra-Orthodox uh, dodged service in an effective manner. So, so five of the six leaders of the coalition that are initiating this overall never served any real uh, uh, m- m- meaningful service themselves. And now they are attacking and undermining uh, those people who served for decades and calling them uh, dodgers of service. Those, those are people in the coalition. Those are people that don't even know how the document that you sign up for voluntary service. They never saw this document. They don't even know how it looks like. So they don't understand the situation. And since there are so few reservists, it's, it's de facto voluntary. It's legally voluntary in most cases, but it's also de facto voluntary. And the entire underlying contract that enables Israel to remain a safe country is based on the, you know, on a people's army model. It's not a professional army. A people's army model is a model that means that the smartest and brightest of, of, of Israel are going to the military because they believe it's necessary, because they want to do it, because they're motivated. And this is the formula that allowed us to remain so strong and secure for 75 years. And this formula now is being undermined. And, and this is why it's so reckless. Even if, you know, those who believe in the merits of this overall and think it's, it's a great thing for Israeli democracy, the fact that key people, such important people, you know, feel that it's a violation of the values that are most important to them, this in itself should be enough to, to sort of back off and say, okay, let's enter into discussion. Let's see what, what's important to you. But instead, moving forward so aggressively, uh, uh, triggered this counter reaction, and now we're seeing that the the the, the very competence of the IDF is, is is being undermined because those people are saying, okay, we got it. We're just taking a, a step back, and now key reservists, and it's heartbreaking. In in my unit, many dozens, if not hundreds, of of, of reservists who've been in key roles, you know, top officers, lieutenant colonels, uh, majors, and and so on, that have really been carrying the burden of of the unit's missions for years have been uh, have suspended their voluntary status and said until the this legislation is suspended we are suspending our voluntary status and obviously it's also taking place in other units thousands of reservists and of course in the air force so this is a serious problem not only because it challenges the competence of the IDF the worst part of it is the, that it undermines the basic values of of, of solidarity and cohesion. And if there are people in the government who think that this won't trickle down into the uh, motivation of, of those who are serving now in the standing army and those youngsters who are about to join, the youngsters that are about to join are the kids and nephews and nieces of those who are, who are serving today. And for sure, it will affect their uh, motivation as well. So this is really uh, probably the most worrying and concerning element of this crisis. And yeah, Alison, I'm also sharing it as a father of two daughters that are currently serving in the military and, and, and 
And I'm very concerned about it. All the concerning topics we've discussed. Thank you so much for coming on Haaretz Weekly to talk about them with us. Yochanan Plesner, president of the Israel Democracy Institute. Thanks for having me. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Yochanan Plesner, to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.